Alright folks, so this is Unstandardized English. This is, as ever, a podcast about epistemological whiteness or white epistemology um, and language and academia um, and gatekeeping and hierarchies and pathologization and whatever else comes into my head. Uh, my name is JPB Gerald. I'm going to introduce myself again. It's the second episode of season three. Um, and then I'm going to stop introducing myself beyond saying my name because, well, at that point, you will know. Uh, but anyway, I'm a doctoral candidate at Hunter College in New York City, otherwise known as unceded Lenape slash Canarsie land, at least where I live in what you probably know as Queens. Uh, and yeah, my research again focuses on whiteness, language teaching, disability, um, intelligence. That sounds like a lot of things, but all of them are related. And this episode is a pretty interesting one. Um, let me tell you, the guest I have on today, she talks as fast as I do. She talks faster than I do. So, I'm not talking that fast right now, but uh, you are in for some fast talking tonight. It's very, you know, full academic wonk on this one, but it's not inaccessible that we're talking about that. What we talk about tonight is two things based on her research. Uh, Dr. Jess Calarco from Indiana University. She is a sociologist and she has researched a bunch of interesting things, especially related to parenting and decision making and how parents make decisions on behalf of their children, especially now. Most recently, one of her recent articles is about parents making decisions related to vaccines. So there's that. Um, if you are anti vax, you should stop listening to this and go get a shot. Arming people. Anyway, uh, but we also talked about something she wrote about in her book recently, which is called The Field Guide to Grad School. We talked a lot, most of the conversation is actually not about the vaccine thing, but it's mostly about the book and those concepts of gatekeeping, all of the things that go into why people feel excluded from grad school, from doctoral studies, from all of these things. You know, about the way that academic writing is positioned and constructed, the way that um, professors are disincentivized from investing in students who might need support, who um, are seen as poor investments, right? We talked about grading and how that can be obstructing learning. We talked about a lot of things related to gatekeeping and parent parental decision making but mostly about gatekeeping in grad school and that's what i would say the topic of 90 percent of the conversation is and then we talk about vaccines at the end uh good conversation really interesting i think that you will enjoy this one so uh hope that you strap in and pay attention there is a patreon link in the show notes for anyone who is interested in donating to this uh, work that I do here. Again, there's a Patreon link. I appreciate any donations. And yeah, on with it. Then. So, welcome back, folks, to Unstandardized English. I'm Jake Gerald. You all know that by now. I am here today with Dr. Jess Calarco uh, from Indiana University. Uh, if you would like to introduce yourself to the people, Dr. Calarco, and tell them the things that you study and what you write about and so forth, and then we can start talking. 
Excellent. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, as, um, as you mentioned, I'm Jess Calarco. I'm an associate professor of sociology at Indiana University. Uh, my research focuses on inequalities in education and family life uh, with a focus on kind of the how people with privilege leverage that privilege for their own gain um, and in doing so, the kinds of externalities that creates in the process. It's an interesting statement. You've clearly been doing this long enough to boil that down into a statement that is easier for people to digest. Um, <laughs> because when people ask me, I'm just like, well, and then I talk for a long time. So uh, there's one main thing that I want to talk about when it comes to like uh, some of the barriers that have come up in the last year and a half and all that, but I'll get to that in a minute. You wrote one of uh, the books you've written was about um, sort of gatekeeping in graduate school and that sort of thing. I, I, I can't remember the title off the top of my head, um, but it goes into a lot of the ways that, you know, people are artificially excluded from, you know, uh, various grad school processes. So if you want to talk a little bit about that, because there's a lot there to discuss because it relates a lot to what I talk about on the show and in general, um, and I think we can sort of slide into um, the other the more recent article about you know what's it, vaccines, childcare, and all the oh whatever it is that was happening in the last year. So. Sure, absolutely, and so yeah, so uh, in 2020, I um, published my second book called A Field Guide to Grad School, um, which is essentially about the hidden curriculum of grad school, which is the things that you are expected to know and judged on knowing, um, but often aren't explicitly taught, and that's certainly a part of the book. Um, but I also get into this idea of sort of well, why is there a hidden curriculum at all? Why, if there are these skills that are necessary for success in grad school and in careers beyond grad school, are some people being kind of explicitly or implicitly excluded from those? skills why aren't they being explicitly taught and I think it gets back to the, the the fact that academia higher education is and has long been a, a, an institution dominated by kind of privileged white people and particularly privileged white men um, and kind of thinking about how the setup of that institution creates incentives um, for the institution to perpetuate its privileges um, but also the way that higher education as an institution is, is funded and structured in ways that disincentivize faculty members uh, from investing in students who they perceive as needing more support. Um, and if we think about how our education system from preschool up through higher ed is structured, it's structured in ways that, that limit access to, to knowledge from things like the hidden curriculum. Um, where you go to college determines how many opportunities you have to work with faculty members in terms of doing, doing research or getting access to internships or getting access to those kinds of things that help to pave the way to grad school um, and that, that give access to some pieces of that hidden curriculum. And so if faculty members are looking to things like where you went to college or who you worked with as an undergrad to say, to make those judgments about who are they going to invest time in? It, it creates essentially incentives for what we might call a picking winners model of advising, um, where faculty members will often kind of make explicitly or implicitly racist or classist or sexist judgments about sort of who they think is going to be most successful um, and then use that to invest in students with time and energy and, and resources. Um, and then that kind of perpetuates this hidden curriculum. If those students who've had more opportunities coming in are seen as more ready for grad school and then get further invested in by faculty, then that kind of perpetuates these inequalities by further deepening the divide and who has access to critical knowledge and resources and support and who doesn't. 
there's there's a lot in there and one thing i sort of want to point out is this anecdote that i've mentioned a few times on the show not that you would know that but uh it, it or no it's in my book but um i had a professor a couple of years ago who told me because i was sort of getting uncomfortable with the way iq is centered in a lot of discussions now it's iq is brought up a lot in doctoral studies because of its because of the, the normal curve and all that right you know so um it makes it easier for people to you know um you know just hey it's 100 it's average and all that stuff so we talk a lot about iq in there even if we're not focusing on iq in our studies and um you know one of the things that my professor said was that i uh what did she say she said that it was still valuable to focus on IQ because it correlates with or therefore predicts uh, the people who are going to have higher GPAs in their undergrad studies. And I don't know if that's true or not. I assume based on the fact that she said it, that it is true. But what I think, and I didn't have the language to articulate it at the time, is that what it's really showing is because IQ is not you know we can all talk about our issues with iq but it's showing like the people who do well in undergrad and i'm sure this is similar for grad school are the people who the schools and the professors are told that they should invest in so what you're seeing is it's sort of a self-selecting thing um where uh you know the this the iq which is based on you know, it, it, it says it's in an aptitude test, but it's really a, an achievement test. Uh, and then they get to undergrad and then people say, oh, they had a high IQ, I'll support them. And then they do well. And then they get to grad school and it's the same thing. You know, they say, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's the same thing. So my point is that like, it does correlate, but what it's really showing is that people are being selected um, as opposed to that they are, you know, the, the best. And I think about that a lot. Uh, because it's the same thing that you're talking about, right? It's that people are being so, sort of pre-selected based on who they are. And then, you know, if you can't be that, they are saying that, well, you're just not working hard enough. Yeah, I have a new working paper that I'm working on with two of my colleagues, Alana Horn and Grace Chen, that looks at homework in elementary and middle school and the way that teachers use the myth of meritocracy to make sense of inequalities in students' homework, um, and then use that to justify underinvesting in students from lower SES families. They, they know that there are inequalities in students' home lives. They understand that some kids have parents who can invest tremendous amounts of time and energy and support, that some parents are even doing the homework for kids. Um, and they know that other kids don't have that kind of support with homework at home, but then they end up using those inequalities to justify kind of punishing kids for not having homework, saying, you know what, if you don't do the homework at home, I'm not going to invest time and energy in you. If you don't kind of put in the work, um, I'm not, you're not worth my time to some extent. And, and we talk about how they kind of point to these kind of um, responsi responsibilized explanations for these inequalities in students' homework production and who forgets their homework, who comes without it, who is able to get it done. And they talk about like, you're just not being responsible enough. Well, on this, at the same time, they can point to, except that we know that you have these problems going on at home that are making it hard for you to get the homework done, that you live in a more difficult home environment, that there's a lot going on, that you're moving around a lot. 
And so there's this disconnect um, and it starts so early uh, with how teachers are, are investing or, or under investing in certain students. And certainly it's, it's not to the same extent with every teacher um, or every instructor, um, but it starts so early. And I think you're right that it just, it, it builds. Um, and that at every level, what we're seeing when we're looking at things like standardized test scores or IQ scores are the accumulation of a lifetime of, of opportunities or advantages in many cases um, that are then getting measured by these tests or by these, um, procedures and then get sort of reified in terms of the inequality, the way that they get used to normalize and then justify the unequal treatment of people everywhere from, from preschool up through um, college and grad school as well. I mean, we believe so heavily in these numbers that, that, you know, we can make the argument against them, but if we don't have an equivalent number that disproves them, then they're not going to listen. You know, or they'll risk, they'll say, but what, what about the number? Won't it affect the number? And I don't know that it does. Like, like one of the things that I think sometimes is that we don't try things sometimes because we worry that it'll affect the number negatively, but we don't even know that it will sometimes. Yeah, you absolutely. Know. In the, uh, the, the paper I was just talking about, the homework paper, I mean, we talk about how homework is so deeply embedded in our um, sort of grammar of schooling, to use a very kind of history of education term. Um, and yet, there's a huge reluctance to abandon it. Some schools have, um, but when we've tried in, in past iterations of this paper to even suggest the possibility of abandoning homework, if we know that it literally experimental studies have shown that assigning homework increases inequalities in test scores among students. Um, if we know that that's the case, there's still a reluctance to abandon this inequality increasing practice. And it gets to the kind of how ingrained these things are and how difficult it is to change them and how kind of it becomes tricky because of the, exactly these kinds of numerical justifications that you're talking about it and the, the reluctance to change things and try new practices or try to kind of see what else we could do instead. There's one of the, the things that I'd realized very, very recently about myself and my own experiences. I went to a private school and I was sent there because you know, my parents had gotten to a point where they felt that they could afford that and thought it'd be a better environment for me. And in certain ways it was, especially in terms of them encouraging my writing and stuff like that. But uh, in certain ways, like they still, like was, I was the black kid, right? So uh, the, there were certain, and, and then, in retrospect, having realized in recent years that I was neurodivergent, there were things that I really was struggling with in terms of homework. And it wasn't, everyone knew it wasn't an intellectual capability issue with me. Um, they weren't, I was not struggling to read or I'm not saying that that makes someone unintelligent. I'm just saying that wasn't an issue that I had. Uh, and so they, so because they knew I was intellectually capable of everything, then if I couldn't do something, they're like, well, he's lazy. Um, and you know, he's not applying himself is the word. And then I remember very, and I didn't think about this till recently in seventh grade was there was a big jump between sixth and seventh grade. I went to the same school for all those years. So it did the same building, but one, I had one history teacher whose, whose way of teaching was we were learning about like medieval something, I don't know. And he would write his, his whatever on the, on the board. And he would just fill the whole chalkboard with notes, the whole chalkboard. Uh, and he expected us to, to take it all down. And I realize now I really struggle with taking notes. Um, I, 
can't focus on it very well. And I was really struggling back then. So I didn't retain it well. You know, they, they always say writing things down helps people retain things. It doesn't help me. Uh, but I just thought it meant that I was lazy. They all thought I was lazy. And I actually like didn't go to school for half a week because I was just so behind and overwhelmed by the note taking. But the impression I got from them and from my parents was that like I was lazy um because i wasn't doing the homework correctly and it took me a few more years to figure out the way that i needed to be doing this stuff and i did figure it out but a lot of kids don't you know it wasn't because i was more capable i just i got lucky where i figured i turned it into sort of a video game with myself where i said i'm gonna get all my homework done before i even get home i would do it on the subway uh and then i'd be like yeah and then i was but it wasn't because i cared about the work it's because i wanted to prove to myself i could get done before i got home um and still honestly now you see with the book thing i mean i finish everything super early so it's just really like i, I never stopped doing it everything early it's not actually healthy uh but i'm almost done so whatever um and realizing that that on myself and and how people um homework i think there are ways to make it useful, uh, but there's the like, hey, why don't you try to to read something? You know, you know, if you give someone a novel to read or something like that, yeah, you probably can't read the whole novel in class. But uh, in terms of just go home and do a bunch of problems, like, I don't. There doesn't seem to be enough evidence that that actually is the only way to teach people aside from the fact that it's the only way things are done. And then you look at the literature and the literature is so heavily weighted towards doing things the same way that it's really hard to say, oh no, you should do it this way because the literature will say, just because the preponderance of evidence doesn't mean it's correct, but there's so much of it that it's hard to argue against it because then they'll say, well, go prove it. And I'm like, well, it's gonna take me a while to prove, well, then I'm not doing it. Yeah, and, and with homework especially, I mean, the research suggests that, that in part it's, it's used as rigor theater. It's used essentially as a way for schools to prove to parents and to administrators and to school boards that the school is, is kind of doing its job and being kind of rigorous in its curriculum. But one of the things we find is that that ends up with teachers creating homework that they know is too difficult for students to complete, especially independently and without sort of parent support. Even in middle school and high school, teachers kind of knowingly assigning work that they know that students will need support with or will have to come and ask for help with later on. And one of the things that I find in, in some of my other work is that it's incredibly difficult for many students to ask for help because of the way that they've been treated by institutions, because of how they've been labeled and judged uh, by their teachers, by other institutions, by how their families have been labeled and judged and treated. And that creates a lack of trust. And when you don't have a trusting relationship, the idea of asking for help, whether it's with math homework or with other kinds of struggles in school, can be really risky for students. And, and especially if teachers are kind of carrying around these ideas rooted in things like myths of meritocracy or sort of racist or classist or sexist beliefs about students that can then get perpetuated and when, when students do ask for help. I mean, I think it's there's huge risks involved for students. And when we kind of expect students to do as much as you can and then ask for help when you're done, that creates these potentials for further inequalities and, and can really leave students feeling underinvested in and, and kind of further frustrated and, and can lead to some of those sort of internalizing of those labels if you're just lazy or you're just not working hard enough or um, you're just not doing the work. There's, yeah, I don't think, I found out later on that a lot of my friends were talking openly about their homework with their parents. And my parents were not, obviously I was not in a position where my parents would talk to me, but I mean, like, they just like, because I was the quote unquote smart kid, they just, I, they were like, did you do it? I was like, yep. But I, but I sometimes I would, didn't do it or I was struggling. 
So, you know, uh, asking for help is such a, honestly, a rare thing. Um, and to have that relationship and time to do so, and then you're creating homework where that's basically necessary, you know, um, that you're just sort of defeating the purpose, I think. Um, if you were to make that explicit up front, I could see the value in saying, you know, maybe this will be a project you can do with your family. Fine, whatever. I'm not saying that's a great idea, but like it's it's to me, it's always about what you're saying. It's like the hidden curriculum, right? You know, if you could, I could see a justification if they were really upfront about what's happening, but they aren't. <laughs> is the point, you know? And the same thing happens when you should go to slide it back to the original topic to talking about grad school and you know undergrad too, but especially in grad school and even more so I think in doctoral studies where like part of the reason I didn't apply for several years is because I thought it was a totally different thing than it is. You know, it reminds me, this is, seems unrelated, but it's not. Uh, when I was 21 and I went to a club for the first time and it was very expensive and I'm like, well, there must be a, 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 a whole new level of music in here. No, there's not. This is the same music. So why is it so expensive, right? So then I got to doctoral studies and it wasn't it's not the money thing, but I got there and I'm like, there must be a whole new level of education in here. No, it's not. <laughs> it's still grad school. I'm like, I did this already. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying like, it's not this, this mystical, mythical thing where it's just, they make it seem like, you know, you are going to receive education coming down from on high and you shall be knighted by the professors. And it's like, there are things that are unique to doctoral studies, but they really make it seem like no one can possibly achieve these things. And that's really not the case. Um, yeah, and I think, and, and part of it, especially in grad school is that I think as we have further the underfunding of universities, um, that faculty members have less and less and less time available, um, or at least are incentive to, incentivized to spend less and less and less time mentoring students and really providing those kinds of hands-on opportunities that could make grad school and, and doctoral studies in particular distinct from undergrad or distinct from a master's program. Um, but as we've sort of pushed more and more work onto fewer and fewer faculty as we put more and more rewards onto research as opposed to things like teaching and mentoring and service, faculty are, are sorely disincentivized to really invest in, in making graduate school an experience for students, especially for students in doctoral programs who in many cases get funding from the university as opposed to the other way around. And so there's a, a direct financial disincentive for faculty to invest time and energy and money into into supporting their PhD students. And that just, I mean, certainly there are faculty members who are doing that work and they're disproportionately scholars of color, especially women scholars of color and, and women scholars more generally that do a disproportionate share of that teaching and mentoring and service work uh, with grad students and undergrads research has shown. And, and yet they're not rewarded for that work. And when we have those inequalities and in who's doing the work of actually investing in students and supporting them and teaching them, then it creates further inequalities and in that they often get pushed out of their careers before they have a chance to make it to tenure or make it to full professor because they're burned out uh, by doing too much of that work themselves. Yeah, it's, it's sort of remarkable to me how unsupported, like the, the people that I've spoken to and, and, and I've tried to build with myself because I'm not a professor or anything like that at this point, but like, you know, it's, it's, it's very rarely the people who are sitting at the top of the pyramid who are spending time with, you know, on these things. Um, and it's not, there's exceptions to all, but, um, and it's not, 
it's not surprising to me to find that that is the case. I didn't know. I mean, I, I assume, but I didn't know for a fact that that was happening, but that's not surprising. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, I think that this is not an accident. <laughs> They're doing this on purpose. Uh, the admins, the deans, you know, you will read how much these schools care about black lives, but who's actually the dean? You know, uh, you'll read that they're committed to diversity and so forth. First of all, when you hear some places committed to diversity, they're like 20 years behind. But still, uh, they'll say that, but then, you know, they won't actually support their scholars of color or their female scholars, right? Or the non-binary scholars, you know what I'm saying, the minoritized scholars. Um, and I, I, it's a sad thing because in in my doctoral program, like I have, there have been more people of color and more black people, especially in this co in this program, percentage wise, not numbers wise, obviously compared to undergrad, than there have been in any program or any school I've been in. Um, and it's just still not very many. <laughs> you know, I, I I make a joke that when I started in my cohort, it was it was a really strong representation because it was 12% black. There were eight of us, so it was me. <laughs> uh, so, you know, um, but still, it's, I mean, there's been more people in the years ahead of me and behind me, so whatever. But, you know, I think that there's so many things, and I think a lot about writing, obviously, because this, I spent a lot of time doing it, and I think about, you know, one of the reasons that I was resistant for so long for applying was I thought that I was going to have to create those articles and it was gonna have to sound like that and i said well i can't do that uh i said to myself you know just like the club experience i said clearly the people going into these schools just come out of there ready to churn out these things that are so dense beyond belief and uh some of them are but th that's not an ability i mean it's an ability but it's not a higher ability you know, it's certainly a skill. It just doesn't make you more skilled. Because uh, I don't have that skill to write the way that these articles are written. I just can't do it. I cannot do it. Uh, and I thought that I, would, that I wouldn't be able to, to, to persevere through a program if I couldn't, you know, generate the, like, impersonal academic language thing. Um, and they don't certainly make it seem like that is a, that it is possible for you to do other things. When you get into certain programs, they tell you that, but the general atmosphere around these programs is not that, you know? Um, and I think that that's, I mean, that's just one example, but that's one particular thing that I think is a real disservice to people who might be interested in trying to genuinely express themselves through scholarship and research. Like there is a value to scholarship and research. Uh, what is the value? I don't know, but there is a value. And uh, I think they make it seem like you have to be this impersonal clown to, to create it. And I think that that's a really, that's one of those, it's not quite the hidden curriculum, but it's just one of those hidden things that actually you can create scholarship that's genuine and, and creative and interesting, but they make it seem like, no, 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 you'll never succeed if you do that. And yeah, it's, it's one of those sort of 
seemingly meritocratic standards um, that very much is not. Um, and I think it's one of the key ways that if institutions really want to commit themselves to diversity and inclusion, that they need to be willing to, to shake up their standards for what counts as academic, what counts as good writing, what counts as scientific, what counts as kind of um, ways of thinking that are privileged and valued within an academic setting, because there isn't one effective way to write. And if anything, a lot of that academic writing that you're talking about is so dense uh, and so challenging to read for students that it discourages them, that it pushes them out of disciplines that have too much of that kind of jargon dense um, sentences with seven or eight different clauses um, to kind of make one point. Uh, I mean, that kind of writing is, is difficult for students. I would argue that it perpetuates imposter syndrome in the sense that it makes students feel like they're the problem as opposed to the writer who could have probably written something more clearly. Um, and so I think that really we need to be thinking about how do we write for clarity? How do we write not simplifying ideas, but simplifying and, and personalizing and, and making writing accessible in ways that, that that people can connect to, whether they're familiar with the discipline or not, uh, whether they are an undergrad or a grad student or a professor, uh, whether they're in academia or outside of academia. I mean, that's effective writing in, in my view, um, is, is writing that can connect with people and can convey ideas in, in meaningful ways that can inspire people to think differently or to act differently or to kind of discover new ways of, of, of going about moving through the world. And so I think that's I mean, I think those are the kinds of things that we need to be shaking up and our standards around what counts, where it counts, and, and who is allowed to do and who is allowed to do what. Um, that that's what we need to be able to move beyond lip service, or at least one piece of what we need to do to move beyond lip service uh, in academia. I think it's it's just like I it 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 becomes sort of a like a religion that that is the best kind of writing, you know, because. I've had professors who clearly don't believe that that is the best kind of writing because I talk to them and they, because I don't have any patience, are honest with me. Uh, and now it would, it helps that I have been doing well in the class. So I'm able, right? But like I'm able to get them to be honest with me. Uh, but like I still, you know, I came in and, and, and you know, there's a tightrope, right? Because when you first start in a program, they have to teach you certain basic things so that you understand them. You can choose to deviate from them, but you got to know what you're deviating from, right? But some programs will teach you the basic things and then penalize you if you deviate from them. And it's one thing to penalize people if they genuinely seem not to understand something and they need to understand it, right? But um, it just reminds me of being in like high school and, and saying like, what's the difference between a motif and a theme? And it's like, um, <laughs> I'm just like, do, do you care? Like, do you actually care? Or you just want to memorize this word? You've never used the word motif since high school. Um, like, we're just, theme is fine. <laughs> um, and then like, you know, reading some of these studies and we're supposed to judge it as good or you know, give it a judgment based on, does it have these various, like these, does it hit the check boxes? And I say, you know, one of the things, one of the, it's, I keep talking about these things because I have all these articles that are like, and chapters that are like in progress or they're finished and they just haven't been released yet. But like one of the things I'm working on is one about what I'm calling like check boxes and merit badges, right? Because like, I think that a lot of these like anti-racist or decolonizing the curriculum all that stuff it's like people want to check a few boxes and then they did it they're like see i did it and i'm just like no 
Um, and then the merit badge is the same thing. It's like, I did three things and now I'm an anti-racist. It's like, if you knew what it was about, you wouldn't be calling yourself anything. You would just keep doing it. Um, and everyone wants a checklist. And that's the thing, these schools push checklists partially because they need a rubric to grade people, which is why, you know, me and my opinions about grades, but uh, also because it's hard to assess things that are messy. And I don't think we're going to ever get anywhere forward if we're going to do things in a way that's not messy, because progress is messy. Um, and I don't know how to convince people to just accept the mess. Um, this is maybe this is gonna, I always have a theme in my season somehow because the first season was very specifically about language and, and race and stuff like that. And the second season was more generally about um, my issues with academia. But the third season I think might be about sort of we have to embrace the mess because people don't want to deal with that. They they want the binaries, they want the hierarchies, they want you know these things are neat and easy to understand. Um, so no, you're absolutely right, and I think I mean. To your point about grading, I mean, I think it, you're absolutely right that the people want to put, especially institutions want to put people in boxes. They, they want to give people a letter grade. They want to give them, they want to know whether they're high achieving or low achieving. They want to know which, which racial category they fit into, which gender category they fit into. We're comfortable with categories. We're comfortable with boxes. And when things get messy, it gets complicated. But I think one of the things that the pandemic has made abundantly clear is that that life is messy and people's lives are messy and, and that we have to be ready as institutions and as people to account for and deal with that complexity that has long existed, has always existed before the pandemic. And I mean, my hope is that it's it's made that the pandemic has made more instructors at every level more aware of the complexities of their students' lives and more willing to challenge or rethink their own pedagogy uh, in ways that have the potential at least to, to, to make some at, at least sort of minor tinkerings toward bigger change. Uh, I mean, I think for myself, I mean, I, I moved from sort of a pretty flexible grading model to a completely ungraded model of, of um, evaluating students um, or, or having students evaluate themselves really um, during the pandemic that back in the spring of 2020, I was like, I don't feel comfortable given everything that is going on right now. I don't know what my students are facing. I mean, I have some inclination, but I'm teaching 250 undergrads in a room at the same time. There's no way I can spend the time to get to know each one of them individually and feel like I have a, a good enough grasp to know what's going on with them to, 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 to feel like I'm grading them in any sort of meaningful way based on the work that they're producing for me. And so I switched to a model where students self of where I give them feedback on all the work that they turn in with the help of grad students, um, but they propose their own grades and they say they reflect on their learning and they talk about what they've learned and they say this is this is what I think I've done. This is what I think is, is warranted for for the work this semester and it's been um, a really fascinating process to see students grapple with that uh, and sort of think about themselves that way. I wish I didn't have to give them any grades. If I, if I could get away with it, I would love to just abandon the whole grading system in its entirety. Um, but at least for now, this feels like a way to have a conversation with students. And if anything, that the role that I tend to play most often is helping students to see a higher value in the work that they're doing than the way that they grade themselves. Um, I mean, that's that's been my primary role in the grading process over the last couple of semesters that I've been doing this. Um, and it's, it's certainly not a perfect system, um, but for me, it seems like a way that I can feel a little bit more comfortable dealing with the messiness um, and, and finding ways to live in that messiness and, and get to know students on a on a deeper level and help them maybe hopefully get some skills for um, thinking critically about their own work and assessing what's reasonable for them in the context of their lives. 
That's really interesting. I didn't really think about that. I always want, I, I, and now, because when you said that, I sort of drifted off into thinking about what grades I would be giving myself. Like, would I still have the same grades? Would I have higher grades? Would I have lower grades? I don't know. Uh, it's funny because when I get grades, generally, I only check my grades because I, my job gives me a partial, like I have to pay for school, but my job gives me a partial refund and I have to pass to get the refund. So I have to go get the grade and send it to my job. Not to my supervisor, but to the like institution. Um, so I know what they are because I have to go get them. Uh, but I think if I feel like I did put the work in, I don't really care what the grade is. I know I did my job. And the funny thing is, the less I care, the better I do. I don't mean that I don't care about my work. I mean, the less I care about the grade. If I'm sitting there trying to eke out a point or two and I'm stressed the whole time, it doesn't tend to work as well. And on the other hand, I think, because I think that like trying to put points together does not help, you know, it doesn't help the students, right? Like I remember I got into an argument with my classmates, I guess two and a half years ago now, um, because they were really stressed about grades in the class we were taking together. And they were stressed, like, like on the one hand, I totally understand certain things. On the other hand, I had no patience for it because I don't have any patience. But like they were in a class and we had the classes on the same day, two classes. One class was statistics class. None of us were very good at statistics, but we had to take it. So we, that's when the class was. And the other one, there was a final paper due the same day. Now, they said, this is unfair. How could this happen? Part of me was like, I get it. Part of me was also like, I did it already. Mm. <laughs> and so they, they, they went and they asked the professor for more time. And I was like, but I did it already. Um, and, uh, and then they, but the, 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 the message they sent to the professors was we need more time to, to do our best work. But what they meant was they were worried about their grades. And I get it. If they had not been so worried about getting first a 93 versus a 94 or whatever the number, I'm just picking numbers here. I don't I think that they would have stressed them out as much. And I'm not, I don't mean to speak for them. Some of them listen to this, you know, I talk about them a lot. So, uh, and they, uh, so I think that that doesn't help, especially at that. And I don't mean highest level. I just mean level in terms of how many years we've been in school. Uh, yeah, I'm in like 22nd grade or whatever it is, but you know, because I don't really think, how do you really evaluate in terms of numbers, like writing, how do you do it? You know, I, I used to have to, when I taught at a really shady, like, you know, English school and, and they were like, you have to give points based on this. And I was like, but it's a good, I understand what they said, but I know what she meant. Um, and it, you know, it really became an issue. I, I, I eventually I started, and I started making up grades eventually. I was like, yeah, it's fine. Um, and I would talk to them about aspects of what I thought that they might want to work on, not because it was bad, but because I could see that they were trying to say something and they weren't quite able to say it, you know? Yeah, yeah absolutely. and I think you're, I mean, you're right. The, the most common comment that I've gotten from students since I switched to an ungrading model is 
that it allows them to focus more on what they're learning as opposed to what grade they're going to get for it. And I think that's absolutely true that you're, you're right, that the, when we are in this hyper-competitive GPA focused, is this going to be a high enough GPA to get me into the grad school program that I want to, or get me the job that I want or whatever, that that completely strips away the, 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 the purpose of learning, which is really about sort of gaining knowledge and gaining skills and, and learning to sort of think critically about the world and, and engage with the world and, and write or, or produce stuff or create things. And, and I think that gets stripped away when we focus too much on the numbers when we focus too much on grades or on test scores. And so I, and I think you're right then in pointing out kind of how much damage that can do to students psychologically when there's so much pressure to get those grades, but also how it can undermine learning. It can literally undermine learning as opposed to having the opposite effect instead. I, I think it also, because so, I don't know what the, the number fluctuates, but it, what, what is it like 55% of people finish their doctorate or something like that? I don't know what the number is. Um, it's not high, but it's not like 20. Um, I don't know, it's like half, right? And, well, you know, within seven or eight years, I don't know what, I don't know what the specific metric is, but schools genuinely, unless they're like shady schools that don't care and they're just trying to take people's money, um, want people to succeed, especially when you get to grad school, right? I mean, the, theoretically. Um, and I think sometimes the grades, not only do they prevent learning or obstruct learning, but like then the school is like, how are we going to get more graduates? And you know, it becomes sort of a conflict. Like, they, oh, we, we need to give them grades, but we need to make sure they graduate. So then, you know, you have to juggle these things. It's like, hmm, I wonder. There's a, an actual thing you could do here that would probably make it easier for these things to occur. But they aren't really willing to do that. That, you know, and the fact that it is a letter or a number isn't necessarily the issue. Is the centrality right you know you could put a letter on something and and you know that could be fine but to me it's really just saying i approve that you put this work in. you know there's ways to do it that aren't what it is um and and then of course in like doctoral programs like you have to get above a b to stay in the program so it's like then what do they even need at that point it's just like you you are in the program <laughs> that's it uh is it really going to be the case that because you didn't do well in one particular class that you can't stay in or are, would, would there have already been other signs that there are things that you, and I don't mean capability in terms of intelligence or whatever, but that like, you know, this isn't really great, the right fit for you. I feel like we base it on the letters, but it's usually going to be, there's gonna be other indications, and, but they'll point to the letter and say, you didn't get the letter. Um, so, but, you know, in terms of, you're talking about pandemic and all this stuff and, and, um, you know, you've, you, you put a couple of things out in the last year and a half that I found pretty interesting. Um, see, there was a nice transition there. Um, and <laughs> uh, one of the ones that we talked about briefly was, uh, was it about parents and their decisions about how that was, they were, going to vac they were going to vaccinate the kids or they were not gonna vaccinate their kids, right? And I sort of pushed at you a little bit about, well, the headline, even though you probably didn't write the headline. Um, but if you could tell what it is, then we could talk about the conversation we had and how all these things are framed. Um, because I think, and it's not always, I'm talking about you per se, I just mean in the discussion, because I think sometimes that, that there's been a lot of discussion that I want to get into. Uh, I know we're not going to go on for more than like 10 more minutes, but there's a useful thing to, to talk about here. Yeah, I mean, so some of the, so basically one of the things 
even before the pandemic, um, my team and I were doing research on parental decision-making, um, starting pretty early in life um, and, and following parents from essentially birth through the first couple of years of their kids' lives to look at kind of how do parents make decisions, especially about things that are sort of fraught in our culture, things like vaccines, things like breastfeeding, things like co-sleeping, things like screen time, things like which school to choose. Um, and how are parents thinking about those decisions? How are parents being judged on those decisions by other people in their lives? And how does that sort of shape the, the trajectories of those decisions that they make? And, and, and do they ever have the potential to change? Do they ever change their mind about things? And how does that happen if it does? And the pandemic sort of dropped in the middle of that um, research that we were already doing. Uh, and it became very apparent very quickly how much of an impact the pandemic was having on families' lives uh, and kind of shaping not only their day-to-day -day circumstances, but also the kinds of decisions that they were being forced to make. And, and some evidence pointing to this idea that the pandemic was amplifying the sort of level of individualism um, that a lot of parents and especially very privileged parents approach decision-making with uh, when it comes to their kids and when it comes to things like their kids' well-being. And so we started collecting data not just about sort of the regular parenting decisions, but about things like, are you going to vaccinate your kids? Are you going to have your kids wear masks? Do you think that schools should require kids to wear masks or to vaccinate? Um, and we did that not only with the, the 250 or so parents that we've been following over a couple of years here in Indiana, and some have moved elsewhere, um, but also with some national level data where we conducted surveys with about 2000 parents across the US um, to try to understand what some of those patterns were. And, and certainly the results have not been super heartening um, in the sense that we find pretty high levels of resistance to things like mask mandates, to things like vaccine mandates in schools, with parents often drawing on highly individualistic or what you might even call neoliberal logics to kind of make the case for why their kids shouldn't have to wear masks and their kids shouldn't have to be vaccinated, even if they know, even if they acknowledge that it's potentially beneficial, that they don't want to put that risk onto their individual kid. Yeah, so then the discussion we had was about, okay, but which parents are these, right? Um, and like, it's in the article, um, but when people just sort of come across the headline, they generally wouldn't know that. Now there's only so much you can put in the headline. If you put that in the headline, it sounds like it's about that. But if you don't put it in the headline, then the people scanning by it won't notice that it's not all parents making these decisions. Absolutely. Yes, you're definitely right there. And essentially what we find is that on the whole opposition to, and it gets, it's complicated. It's not as simple, which is one of the things why it doesn't end up in the headlines is that it's, it's complicated. I mean, so we find with vaccines, for example, when we did the survey back in December, we found that essentially opposition to vaccinations, to required vaccinations, and also plans to not vaccinate were common, more common both among white parents and black parents than among Hispanic and Latino parents. Now, there's been a lot of research that's come out since then highlighting some of the very reasonable distrust that especially black families in the US have in the medical system and the way that they've been mistreated by the medical system and also lack of access to vaccinations and how that can undermine trust in the system um, as well. Concerns about cost, concerns about are they going to have to pay for this? And so what we find when we really drill down into it is that a lot of the sort of strongest of opposition to vaccines um, and also the strongest opposition to masks and mask mandates is coming from sort of privileged white, sorry, the um, from white parents. And then it splits a little bit with vaccines in terms of things like parents' education level. Um, so it's 
kind of parents with lower levels of education, particularly white parents with lower levels of education who identify as Republicans or Republican-leaning independents who are most opposed to vaccine requirements and who most plan to not vaccinate their kids. The interesting thing on the flip side with masks is that it's actually most common among highly educated white parents um, and especially white parents, highly educated white parents with like advanced degrees, not even just a bachelor's degree, that they're, they're more opposed than those without bachelor's degrees. But then those with advanced degrees, with master's degrees and PhDs and JDs and MDs, those parents are even more opposed than those with just a bachelor's degree. And essentially what we find in the qualitative data is that this is coming from these highly privileged parent type concerns about is this going to be damaging for my kids academically? Is this going to mess with my kids' language development? Is this going to mess with my kids' ability to learn from their teacher effectively in school or communicate with their teacher effectively in school? So there's a lot of, it almost feels like a moral panic um, kind of concerns about sort of the what what damage might masks do to my individual kid in the classroom and how might it affect their achievement um, that then seem because they'll let their kids wear masks for like 30 minutes if they go into the grocery store that they're fine with that and they often wear masks themselves um, but they're worried about the sort of prolonged exposure to masks and certainly we don't have a lot of data yet on what the long-term consequences are but it's such a hyper individualistic focus in that it ignores the whole public purpose um, of vaccines and I think it speaks or of, of masks and it it speaks to this sort of larger problem of kind of hyper-privileged individualistic parenting um, that focuses on what's best for the individual child and kind of to heck with everybody else. I've been, I've been thinking a lot about that in the last year because we, you know, we had our son right before the pandemic, right? And we, you know, it wasn't safe to really see our parents indoors last year. Um, and we would see them occasionally in the park or something like that, but they weren't really able to be around him. They always had masks on, so he didn't really know who they were. Um, and one of the joys of recently is that like my parents are, have been very safe and everyone's vaccinated. So they're able to see him every so often now, and that's been great. Um, but in that first year and two months or so, like, it was just us, you know, and we just by, by just by necessity had to make individual decisions, including about some of those things you mentioned. Obviously, he was too young himself to wear a mask, and we know once they get the approval through, we will vaccinate him, but we can't yet. But like in terms of things like co-sleeping and, you know, what feed him and like that was it was we had to make all of those decisions by ourselves you know but that was not the type of thing that affected other people you know so I always wonder where that line is where I'm going to make the decision that's best for my child is what most parents do but I'm going to do what's best for my child and it doesn't really matter what happens to other people is like that is where I find that the line often is. And I do wonder because I do think that there is a difference between I don't trust the medical establishment, which absolutely goes to I want what's best for my child. Uh, but then I actually don't necessarily have a problem with the medical establishment. I just don't want them to tell me what to do is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, I don't want anyone to tell me what to do is a little bit more like I'm wary of what they're doing. And that doesn't mean like they're both a dangerous public health decision. 
but like I think that there is a difference there and you know I think that you know the vaccine I mean you know you did that in like December right so that's before they even really 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 came out um and you know people I know who were people of color and stuff and this is anecdotal but like there was some resistance and then over time almost everybody I know I don't know of anyone who hasn't like I don't know for sure that they're in my life um and whereas the other people I feel like have just gotten stronger and stronger and stronger in their resistance I'm sure that there's this is not cut and dry but and I find that that sometimes, you know, it's hard to relay the complexity of that data in the summary, in both an abstract or a headline or anything. And I think it's, you know, they'll just show the percentage of this group of people that's resistant or has gotten it, right? And they'll show this this group of people uh, is 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 not is opposed to it, right? Um, but I don't know how to co convey that complex amount of data when the decision itself is not complex <laughs> you know like that that part is binding. Um, and that's the part where i think qualitative data becomes necessary because that's where you can actually get into so what's driving people to make these different decisions and is it coming from the same place or is it coming from different attitudes from different ideas about the medical system different ideas about family different ideas about the pandemic different exposures to misinformation I, mean, I think there's a whole host of factors that can play into these decisions even if the choice seems binary uh, essentially, the, 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 I mean, that's part of a, a sociological perspective on things is that things are defined by the value we attach to them, um, by the meanings we attach to them as people. And so people have to weigh during this pandemic, do they value, the, like, how do they value physical health versus sort of social and emotional health? I mean, those are things that come into conflict in, in, some, in some aspects of the pandemic. And so how do you weigh those two things against each other? That's a value judgment on some level. And so, I mean, I think that's where we run into to challenges is, is how to, and why I think so, sociological research becomes really necessary is to make sense of how, what types of logics are people using to make sense of these decisions? Um, and how can even two very different logics lead people to the same decision? Or can sometimes the same logic lead people to very different decisions, um, depending on the kinds of circumstances that they're in? You know, what's funny about my dissertation that is in progress, sort of, is that, like, it is nominally in the education field, because that's what I do, my degree is. And the, there's two questions, right? There's, okay, these are people who took my class. They're white educators. What is the white edu... So they came, they took my class, and then they went and they tried to do something about whiteness in their context. What did they do, right? What, what are the things that people try to do in their context to challenge aspects of whiteness? That's one of the questions. But the first question is, who are these people? Who is the white person who comes in and challenges these things, right? Because ultimately, if you're looking at the short term, it is not actually in your benefit to challenge whiteness. In the long term, I would argue that it's good for everybody and therefore it's good for everybody's good for you too. But I can see if you're only looking one foot in front of yourself that it's not in the benefit. So who are these people? And I think it's actually kind of a sociological thing to be like, who are the people who would challenge something that benefits them? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and it's qualitative, so I'm not going to get some generalizable thing, and that's fine. But, uh, you know, I, I want to know because I think that, and I don't know, I'm going to wrap it up here, but the, there's so many mandatory or, you know, broad 
you know, things to challenge racism that exists and have existed for a while. And um, even ignoring the people who are, the, the loud people who are resistant to it are not the majority in any way. There's a big group of people in the middle who are just sort of on the fence and they're like, whatever, just leave me alone. And what takes someone not from the loud resistant part, but from the middle space where they're just sort of get it going by, what is it? Going along to get along. Uh, mm -hmm to I'm actually gonna turn and try to challenge this. What is it that brings someone from there to there? Because all the people I've talked to at least, and there's not that many, but the ones I've talked to and interviewed, like they did not grow up as some sort of crusader on like racial justice. There's some white people who do, but most do not. Uh, but now they're really trying to challenge things. And a lot of the time, and all I have found so far, and it's not some crystallized thing, but we'll see, is that at some point they felt uncomfortable with being part of this majoritized group. They're like, something is wrong and I don't feel comfortable. And if you are more comfortable sitting within society as it is than pushing against it, then you will stay there. Mm -hmm. And that's a deeply sociological concept in that shame is a powerful motivator. Um, and so when we feel stigmatized or ashamed of who we are, the decisions that we've made, that can push us to change. I mean, it can push us to hide, but it can also push us to change. And so I think it can kind of, I think it has, if it's used correctly, and if, if people are given channels to deal with their shame or deal with the guilt that they have, to use a, a, a sort of white guilt sort of framing of it. I mean, I think it's the kind of thing that can be harnessed potentially, um, but only if in, in the right context and with the right kind of training and with the right sort of guidance on how to channel that into activism, or at least that's that's one possible mechanism. I think there's probably- well, I, I do too. think there's a difference yeah. between shame and guilt, right? You know, mm -hmm. because from what I, everything I've read that guilt can be sort of a paralytic, um, whereas shame can be a motor, not always. You know, mm -hmm. I don't know that I would necessarily, I mean, it might be, I don't know that I would necessarily say they were all ashamed because nobody like pointed it out to them and said, look at this badness. Uh, but I think, you know, it was, it was, they, they sort of sat in the discomfort. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, a good, that's a good way to put it. Less so than, than, cause you're right. The guilt can sort of be, um, can, can discourage action, but, but acknowledging that discomfort and then feeling like there's a way forward out of that discomfort. Um, or at least a way to sort of work through that discomfort um, on a regular basis. Uh, yeah, right. It's the discomfort happens. It's do you do whatever you can to get away from it? And I think sometimes that that's what happens, especially in this year after there's been so much activism and it seems unrelated to the pandemic, but of course it isn't, uh, that people have been pulling into these individualistic ideas because they'll see all this stuff on TV and they're like, that's bad, but that's nothing to do with me. Um, and at the same time, they're like, I'm just going to stay away from all of that and I'm going to stay away from it. And, you know, I think there's the, the fact that there's been a general push for our sort of communitarian thing, which is what valuing Black lives would be, even if someone isn't virulently against that or they're not putting up a Blue Lives sticker or something like that. They're just like, this makes me sort of uncomfortable. I'm going to focus on my child and mm -hmm. I'm not going to talk about it. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and it sounds like, I mean, if you could figure out sort of what leads people to use their own comfort to focus inward versus focus outward. I mean, I think that's a, that's a powerful thing to be able to, to be able to explain. I think, you know, I'll be able to speculate. I won't be able to prove anything, obviously. But I think that, you know, 
there's I don't know I want to call it something but it's just like there's something where they at some point they turned into a square peg and around the hole of whiteness and they were like this is not this is not this is not for me um and they tried to do stuff with that but they, you know it's not fits and fits and starts right they didn't immediately just you know they didn't go like Rachel Dole's all with it or something like that so um so anyway uh it definitely that was kind of two conversations that sort of pivoted at the end there but definitely a lot to chew on for anyone who's been listening tonight. I don't know why I said tonight. People could be listening at any time of day. Um, but thank you, Dr. Kilarko, for the discussion. Uh, we definitely touched on a lot of issues that I think are not discussed enough in academia, grad school, parenting, you know, whatever. Um, and I think that if people actually listen to this, you know, there might be some interesting conversations. And that's what I'm always trying to do, trying to people to have conversations. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. Thank you so much for having me on, Justin. It was it was fun to talk with you and, and interesting. And, and I, I look forward to sharing this with others, too. Thank you. Tom. All right. Thanks.